Hey everyone, welcome back to the World Triathlon Edmonton Science and Triathlon Podcast. This is a series of podcasts that we're recording with the presenters of our 2020 Science and Triathlon Conference. Our conference is happening as a series of monthly webinars and it's 100% free. So if you're interested in knowing more about the conference, our previous presenters and our upcoming presenters, then make sure that you check our website at www.edmonton.triathlon.org. You can also give us a follow on social media. We are at WTS underline Edmonton. And if you have missed any of our previous presentations and of your previous speakers, the presentations have been recorded and are always made available on our YouTube channel, also at WTS underline Edmonton. We have a fantastic episode today and we're going to be discussing the epidemiological aspects of illness and injury in triathlon, the state of the art. And we have two guests on today's episode. We're going to be talking with Dr. Veronica Vlack and Dr. David Houdin. Dr. Vlack and Dr. Houdin wrote the book chapter on the epidemiological aspects of illness and injury in triathlon for the recently launched Triathlon Medicine book. Both have very impressive resumes that I'm more than happy to share with you today. Dr. Vlack is a former laboratory director of the National Sports Medicine Institute of the UK with extensive experience in providing sports science support across multiple sports and athlete ability levels from novices to Olympic medalists. She was the longtime chair of the ETU Medical and Research Committee responsible for organizing the first ever European Championships Coaches Conference and overseeing the medical setup for the 2012 Pre-Olympic European Triathlon Championships. As a former senior university lecturer, she also has considerable teaching experience in sports and exercise physiology and psychology. Dr. Vlack has over 85 academic publications, including the triathlon-specific chapters of, the, of both the IOC Handbook of Sports Medicine on Epidemiology of Injury and Illness in Olympic Sports and the World Book of Swimming. Further, Veronica has been both a triathlon club at the age group level, a head coach and has coached elite level athletes as well. Dr. Vlack is also currently a research fellow at the Faculty of Human Kinetics at the University of Lisbon where she continues her research projects. Dr. David Houdin is a lecturer in strength and conditioning, flexibility, endurance training, coaching, L-diagnostics, swimming, and triathlon at both the Institute of Sports Science and the Carl Frenzine University in Graz, Austria, as well as the Federal Sports Academy and the College of Higher Education. Both his research findings and his international working group has led him to be increasingly involved in international level sports congresses. David is an economist and sports scientist, and he finished his doctoral thesis, for which he won the 2017 Sports Science Prize of the province of Styria on injuries, dietary supplements, and training habits in triathletes. He also conducted research in New Zealand, Australia, and Gran Canaria as part of the work for his undergrad, undergraduate dissertation on shoulder pain in swimming causes and consequences. The dissertation on this topic is one that means a lot to David for many reasons, including his former career as a competitive swimmer having ended due to a shoulder injury and the countless hard hours of therapy that he underwent, and he published this dissertation as a textbook back in 2013. In David's business administration, 
He focused both on the ecological quality of products and the area of crisis management, and his final dissertation was on crisis management taking into account the problem of Marcus Rogan, effects and changes of a sporting career. David's a state-certified swimming and triathlon coach, and it's basically an all-rounder. He's just at home in his athletics, as in the sport of swimming, in which he can look back on umpteen national titles, as well as several state and vice-state championship titles. His training and his many years, both of top-level competitive sport and as a patient on the field of sports-related therapeutics, have enabled David to implement his practical, practical know-how both as a coach and as a lecturer across a wide variety of areas ranging from children's swimming to performance-focused training camps. Few people in the world, if any, that have done more work on this topic than both of them and we are beyond excited to have them as guests in our show today and we're beyond excited to have Dr. Vlack presenting their work in our November seminar. If you're interested in knowing more about Dr. Vlack and Dr. Hoden's work, make sure you visit their website at triathlon-research.com or fluidlife.org. This was a slightly longer episode, it's packed with fantastic information, so I hope you enjoy and make sure that you watch Dr. Vlack's presentation at our 2020 Science and Triathlon Conference. Hey everyone, welcome. This is another episode of our World Triathlon Edmonton Science and Triathlon podcast. And today we're welcoming Dr. Veronica Black and Dr. David Hoden. And we're discussing the epidemiological aspects of illness and injury in triathlon, the state of the art. Dr. Black and Dr. Hoden are going to be presenting in our November seminar. So we're very excited about the presentation that's coming soon. And we're very excited to welcoming both of them to the show today. Thank you so much for both of you for taking the time to be here today. And you both have a, a very impressive resume in triathlon. So if you could briefly give us an introduction on your previous roles and everything that you have done in the sport so far, and how did you guys come to researching this topic in particular? Okay. Uh, well, firstly, um, thank you very much. Uh, both to World Triathlon Edmonton and to the University of Alberta for inviting us. It's a, it's a privilege and an honor to be here. Um, I have been researching how to optimize triathlon training and performance for actually the last 30 years. Um, I was a member of Loughborough Students Tri Club in the UK, uh, most of the athletes of which were national squad. And I did my PhD on monitoring risk factors for and predicting illness, injury and performance drop in elite triathletes. And actually almost everybody in the British and the Scottish national squads took part in that research, which included a seven month longitudinal prospective training diary based survey. And then out of that, one of the national squad asked me to coach him for his preparation for Sydney 2000. So that's how I got into coaching. And I worked with just that one elite for about four years or so. And it was it was an incredible opportunity to apply my academic knowledge and findings into trying to achieve those tiny cutting edge differences. And then later, and partly because I wanted to have the experience of also coaching age groupers, I and my colleagues set up a triathlon club 
that linked to the sports and exercise physiology testing lab of the, the National Sports Medicine Institute of the UK, where I was then the lab director. And I got my um, British Olympic Association accreditation for sports science support to elite triathletes around then. And um, we set up the club uh, for which I was the head coach so that the athletes could access different levels of integrated sports science support from us, in addition to the normal kinds of facilities that you get in a triathlon club. And I used the training diary system for monitoring training and optimizing performance by trying to decrease injury, illness, and non-functional reaching that I'd developed for and I'd used in my PhD research both with these age group athletes as well as with the elites. And then I've continued to refine it on the basis both of that and my continuing research and work with athletes ever since. And um, at the same time, I was the chair of the medical and research committee of the European Triathlon Union for about 15 years. And I also collaborated again over about 15 years, um, providing sports science support to the Portuguese national squad, most closely in the lead up to the Beijing Olympics. And that and my um, earlier work as a coach to a hopeful for the Sydney Games was what fueled my interest in elite performance research. And I've been incredibly fortunate because I collaborated with Adrian Berge's group at Swiss Olympic, uh, doing pacing studies at multiple World Cups, as well as over some of the European Championship and the Olympic courses. And that applied elite performance research is, is of course actually still continuing in tandem with the injury and illness research, uh, most notably with my very dear colleague, Professor Francesco Piacentini, of the University of Rome, Foro Italico, who has very close links with the Italian national team athletes and coaches. And Francesca and her colleagues are, of course, world-renowned in the area of predicting non-functional overreaching, as well as experts on pacing. And um, my research led me to being offered a full-time research position focused on optimization of triathlon performance at the University of Lisbon a decade ago. Although I've coached athletes for, and I've done some research on long distance triathlon, most of my research work focuses on short, and in fact, mainly Olympic distance athletes. David followed the same data collection methods and the same definitions of injury as me to research the extent of and the risk factors for injury and in long distance athletes so closely that we were able to pool our data. And I, I, to be honest, I couldn't believe it. The, the, the work that I hadn't done, he'd done it and vice versa. It was like a perfect fit, it was amazing. Well. Thanks, firstly, thank you for inviting us. Yes, my point of view as a former middle distance runner and competitive swimmer, some national titles, the leap to triathlon was not too far away in general. As I was forced to quit my swimming career because of severe shoulder problems in the age of 23, I made this topic to my diploma thesis in sports science called Shoulder Pain in Swimming, Causes and Consequences. The revised edition I published as a textbook in the year 2013 
in business administration, I focused on the ecological quality of products and especially on area crisis management, where my diploma thesis was on crisis management, taking into account the problem of Marcus Rogan, who was a famous Austrian swimmer, effects and changing of a sporting career. I did my doctoral thesis for which I won the 2017 Sports Science Prize of the Province Styria on interest, dietary supplements and training habits in triathletes. In the course of that, I conducted research in New Zealand, Australia and Gran Canaria for nearly two years. So now as a state certified swimming and triathlon coach, I run my own company focusing on triathlon, swimming, fitness and company health promotion and being a lecturer at both at the Institute of Sports Science and the Federal Sports Academy in Graz. Lately, both my research findings and my international working group has led me to be increasingly involved in international level sports congresses and of course, together with Veronica. Thank you so much for, for that introduction. And it's just letting you guys go through your through your resumes, it's, it just shows how fortunate we are to have you here in, in this podcast today and also to have you as, as our presenters in, in our November conference. But before we actually get into, into the specifics of what we're going to be talking today, you both held some pretty significant positions with the European Triathlon Union, uh, medical research committees, and many others that, that you have mentioned. What are some of the some of the experiences or some of the lessons that that came up from from those experiences that that you have? Well, as Dr. Nicole Van Dyke uh, talking recently as Aspatar, which is one of the IOC research centers about injury prevention, put it: the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. We want to keep athletes safe and we want to optimize their performance. So um, I've been really fortunate because I've seen it from multiple perspectives um, as an athlete, a coach, physiologist, a sports scientist, an academic, and of course, as a researcher, but also from the perspective of clinically meaningful risk management, um, overseeing and assessing the adequacy of and liaising with the technical delegates about the medical logistics package for a pre-Olympic European Championships. And then also from inside the medical tent at World Championship level events, logging the injuries, the how and the why they happened and communicating issues that were identified from that to the technical officials as the events were running because if you know enough about how, where, and why injuries happen at particular locations on a race course, and how this changes with, for example, age group or ability level, you should be able to more effectively act to prevent it and to apportion the right ratios of resources and specialists who can deal with those problems around the course and I've been incredibly privileged as regards the opportunity to learn from people who are at the absolute top of various injury and illness related fields. Uh, the medical delegate type work that I did in LAT, uh, working with Jorge Garcia, the ITU technical delegate, 
and the medical tent-based masterclass on medical logistics at Worlds with Professor Sharma and his team, who's also the medical director of the London Marathon. So that's an event that has 10 times the number of athletes at least. That taught me a lot. And, and in this field, it's all about teamwork. That's a great take to, to end that, that question because I, I think a lot of what we're gonna discuss today when, when, well, both of you talk about how we can prevent or mitigate injuries, I guess it all comes down to, to teamwork. So the reason why we're, we're excited to have both of you as our presenters and, and, and as our guests today is you both wrote the, the book chapter on epidemiological aspects of illness and injury in triathlon on ITU's recent uh, book, Triathlon Medicine. And this is what the presentation on, on this November seminar is going to be all about. So I was wondering if you, if you could both provide a brief overview of, of what the presentation is, is going to be and, and potentially discuss a little bit about those definitions around uh, injuries, illnesses, and what we're actually talking about when, when we mentioned these things. In 2008, Gosling, Gab, and Foster assessed the extent to which triathlon research fulfilled Finch's translating research into injury prevention practice or TRIP framework. That paper is still worth reading, partly because it so beautifully describes the six steps that are necessary for providing an evidence base for injury prevention. These are, firstly, you've got to understand the extent of the problem. Secondly, determining the etiology and the mechanism of injury. Thirdly, identifying and implementing preventative measures. Fourthly, evaluating the preventative measures under ideal conditions. Fifthly, understanding the interventional context. And then finally, evaluating their effectiveness within the real world framework. Next week's presentation of our chapter in triathlon medicine, which was edited by Sergio Miglorini, the World Triathlon Medical Committee Chair, extends on previous reviews that I did for the IOC book on epidemiology of injury and illness in Olympic sports, and also with Professor Gregoire Milla of the University of Lausanne and the help of your own marvelous Professor Mountjoy of the IOC Games Group and McMaster University in Canada. I, I hope she doesn't mind me talking about her like that, but seriously, I actually think she's completely amazing uh, on the effect of triathlon training and racing on general health. So I tabulated all the data, um, I'm into collecting data, uh, that's available on one, uh, the timeline of immunological, oxidative and cardiovascular responses to competition. Two, the proportion of athletes who are affected overall or by either traumatic or overuse or temperature fluid related injury. Three, I did a percent comparison of anatomical locations of injury. Four, uh, a percent comparison of injury types, so contusions or abrasions versus fractures, that kind of thing. Uh, five, then I reviewed the injuries or the illnesses that only got reported in case studies and for which assessment hasn't necessarily been conducted in any of the population or the group specific studies in the triathlon injury literature to date. 
and then six, I reviewed the extent to which the injury that's sustained in training or racing in triathlon hinders activity, uh, leads to seeking of professional help and or recurs. And then I drew together the results of all the studies that examine the putative relationship between selected risk factors and injury occurrence. And you can find presentations as well as links to those reviews on the triathlonresearch.com website. But another reason why this Gosling, Gab and Forbes paper is really worth reading, and you can get it on the internet, is that many of the knowledge gaps that were relevant to translating research into injury prevention practice that they pointed out in 2008 still exist. And one of the big problems is that the papers differ in their definitions of injury, in the time frames that the injury data they've collected refer to, and then in how well they characterize their subjects. And this makes it really hard to compare data across studies. And on top of that, a lot of the studies have got quite small sample sizes. If they're on elites, for example, by the very definition of the term elite, they can't but not be. So the only way to get around that is to actually do collaborative multi-country studies across multiple national squads. But uh, the clinical and then also the non-clinical data that we got over 30 years, these were all obtained using consistent injury definitions in the case of the non-clinical data, that was that which results in either cessation or modification of training for at least a day uh, and or a visit to a clinician. So what we did for the World Triathlon book was as well as updating the findings of the IOC book and my 2014 review with the findings that had come out since then, was we consolidated and then we cross-check all those findings across all our multiple studies and the data that we have for over 2,000 triathletes. Uh, four of these studies, so uh, my consecutive five-year retrospective pilot, which was with National Squad Athletes, uh, a one-month retrospective proof of pilot, uh, the race section of which was actually done at the same time as a medical tent-based study at the same event at Worlds, and a seven-month prospective training diary-based study of mainly short-distance athletes followed directly on and built on the results of each other. And David, uh, for his PhD, did what we believe to be the biggest retrospective examination of injury and pain in long distance athletes since they started regular triathlon training and the risk factors for that. And um, one, I hope he doesn't mind me saying anything, but one thing that was really cool about what he did was that he took each of the anatomical sites who were most commonly affected by injury. And he specifically looked at what risk factors were significantly related with overuse injury occurrence in those specific sites. So that's something that we're going to talk about in the presentation. And I'll probably also talk a bit about my work on monitoring training and performance using training diaries, developing indices of training status adaptation that are specific to the individual athlete and developing predictive so both binary logistic regression and big database neural network type models to try to flag up the warning signs 
of impending maladaptation before that maladaptation happens. So the intervention can take place, hopefully, before it's too late. I can totally see how we, we have a lot to unpack. And, and I'm sure that this presentation in, in the seminar is it's going to be fantastic. And we're, we're still going to talk about where what are those most common sites for injuries and, and that piece on, on, on predictive behaviors or, or, or how we can predict or minimize the risk of, of injury actually occurring. But one of the things that we that we want to get into uh, talking more specifically about this topic is there's always been this idea or this this anecdotal evidence or coach chatter that triathletes are at greater risk of sustaining injury than other athletes that are involved in in different types of endurance training. So my next question to to both of you is how frequently do injuries actually occur in triathlon and, and is it true that triathletes are at a higher risk for sustaining injuries than those who are involved in other endurance events. Okay, well, I'd like to start by saying two things. Um, firstly, triathlon training and competition is generally considered safe for the well-prepared athlete who both performs within his or her individual limits and respects the technical guidelines that are in force. And then secondly, uh, the extent of the injury problem can be reported in either of two ways. In terms of prevalence, that is the number or the proportion of athletes who are affected at a specific time, or in terms of incidence, i.e. a rate per unit time, and this is usually per 10,000 hours of training, you get prevalence data from retrospective recall, and the accuracy of it is going to be affected by how far back you're asking the athlete to remember. Ideally, you want just one month or at most three months, but the shorter the recall period, the more athletes you're actually going to need to ask in the first place if you're going to get enough injury reports to do statistics on. Incidence data are best, but you only really get them from prospective studies. And those are much harder to do. And there's very few of them in triathlon. And in fact, I think the biggest and the most detailed and the longest one seems to be one, one I did. Um, but okay, so what do the data actually say? Let's start with what matters most, the incidence of catastrophic injury. We don't know what this is for triathlon training, but key, incredibly important studies by Harris et al. in the States estimated the values of catastrophic injury whilst racing in USA triathlon sanctioned events at 1.5 deaths per 100,000 race participations. Um, most of those deaths happened in the triathlon swim and why and how these risks can be mitigated is the subject of intensive research. This value of 1.5 deaths per 100,000 race participations is more than the value that's been reported for the same number of marathon participations. Do, do, do you see why instance rate data are better? They, they allow better comparison across studies because they allow for the degree of exposure of the athlete to the risk. So the risk of catastrophic injury is more for triathlon racing than it is for marathon racing. As for less severe injury, 
widely varying values for the extent to which it occurs have been reported. And this is partly because of heterogeneous study samples. It's partly because, as I said before, inconsistent definitions of that injury. And it's also partly due to how far back the study participants have been asked to recall their injuries for. Uh, Egerman et al. and Dr. Hurden, who's here, uh, they got They've got values of 75% and 72% of Ironman athletes, respectively, to have occurred at least one injury during their active time in triathlon and since starting regular triathlon training. Over one season, Shaw got values of 62%. Uh, I got values of 15% of 660 athletes who were competing at the 2013 ITU World Elite and Age Group Championships. And th this was for athletes reporting themselves as injured in the last month. And then I got 26% uh, of them reporting themselves as injured right now, uh, within one month after the event finishing. So the, the key thing to remember here is none of these values are insignificant. Uh, and what is consistent across all the studies today is that more triathletes get what we call overuse injuries. So that's injuries that don't have a specific identifiable cause than are affected by traumatic injuries, um, injuries that occur by a hazard encounter, like falling and or being hit or hitting an obstacle, like me a few years ago, I got hit by a bus. <laughs> um, only one a retrospective study, mine, has, has thus far compared the actual prevalence of overuse and traumatic injuries in different genders and ability levels and event distance specializations using exactly the same methodology and injury definitions throughout. And overuse injury reported by about 56 to 75% athletes and traumatic by 29 to 50. So overuse injuries, you get them more. Uh, and these results implied that neither the relative proportion of athletes who are affected, the relative proportion of all injuries, nor the number of injuries accounted for by overuse and traumatic injury is significantly affected by ability level, gender, or the race distance towards which the athletes are focusing their training. But this study had quite small sample sizes. Um, our data from the one month online questionnaire-based study that was conducted immediately after the 2013 World Championships did also suggest that the proportion of athletes who have self-reported and mainly training-related injury isn't that much different across most triathlete age groups. Uh, so in all the short distance age groups from 20 to 24 to 75 to 79 years of age, um, below 50% of the athletes who took part in the in the research reported the injury. Uh, Vanessa Pereira, uh, who's multiple Portuguese long distance champion, she she actually recently finished her master's dissertation with me, uh, looking at how injury prevalence and the relative importance of the various training related risk factors for that injury might change with age in long distance athletes using David's data. So here we actually had quite large sample sizes for each age group. And if there's time, I'll, I'll go over some of the results from that also in the, in the talk. 
but one thing I did find in the short distance, one month retrospective study of world championship short distance athletes was the extent to which illness leading to stoppage or modification of training or racing was experienced in the month before they finished the survey. And that was just under 12% of the athletes. That might change with age. As regards competition-related injury and illness, it's totally logical that both the extent to which it occurs and its distribution will have similarities, but it will also differ in some ways from training-related injury. The cycle and run sections of competition take place, of course, on closed roads, which is uncommon in the case of training. So you get less risk of vehicle-related hazards and the level of risk of crowd-related injury both within the swim and the cycle disciplines is likely higher even in those longer distance races that have introduced rolling swim starts. Uh, the prospect of observational medical temp-based data that we got in the same world championships as which we did this online survey indicated that the extent of event-based presentation for medical assistance so athletes coming into the medical tent can vary with sex and the overall casualty rate was higher in females than it was in the males at that particular world championships and in the team rally sprint and olympic distance race format for world championship age groupers race-based need of medical assistance also varied with athlete ability level. So over the same weekend, 8.4% of 381 elite, so draft legal racers, 3.1% of just under 4,000 age groupers, so people who are racing non-drafting, and 1% of 2,500 open race starters. So these are people who hadn't had to qualify you know, for their race were actually seen by the on-site medical staff. We, we didn't classify illness as such within the medical report forms, but in all these age, sex, race format, and wholly short distance race different groups that were assessed, lots more athletes had topical problems. So this is stuff like exercise-induced asthma and heat-related rel illness like hypothermia the needed medical assistance for constitutional issues, so stuff like abrasions, blisters and chafes, or for musculoskeletal issues such as joint pain or strain or fractures. And the proportion of the athletes who presented with topical issues was about 26% higher for sprint than it was for Olympic distance uh, competition. And it was also higher for age groupers than it was for, for the elites. Um, so one of the questions which I thought was, okay, so how did training and racing related incidents of illness compare to each other? Well, in the training data study, I actually also assessed both injury and illness on a prospective longitudinal basis. So the same way that a medical tent study is done with the athletes reporting the problems as they happened. Um, but the honest reports in the training diary studies were confined to the kinds of problems that you, you're more expecting to happen in training and that the athletes could self-report. So we can't actually directly compare them to the clinical race data, unfortunately. Um, but one thing that came out of me looking at that was that in triathletes, 
mainly training related self-reported illness incidents may actually be higher than injury incidents. And um, we're also talking about, you know, are you injured or illness with or without performance drops? The athletes reported themselves to be affected by illness without concomitant injury, but coinciding with a performance decrease more often than they reported injury without illness, but with a performance uh, decrease. Interesting. That is super interesting. And, and the one thing that really caught my attention as, as you were going through, through the data is, is the high percentage of athletes who's, who report some, some overuse injuries, uh, injury as part, of their, as part of their training, and who also report a high level of, of illnesses, as, as you mentioned. So one of the things that is specific to triathlon is, is the need to train for three disciplines, which may or may not lead to a higher level of, of training or training volume or, or duration and, and so on. So my, my, my follow-up question to, to both of you is then is training for three disciplines then is, is this a burden or a blessing because will this increase our chances for overuse injuries or illnesses or, or will it actually make it make make the athletes less susceptible to overuse injuries? Well, it's a good question. Uh, yeah. Well, Concerning the training, it is of course a blessing because of the variety of the three disciplines and the cross training. Mm -hmm. In terms of injury risk, it depends on the way that you look at it, but it could be the other way around. So uh, basically the wealth of knowledge and experience about this young sport, which for a long time was referred to as the fastest growing endurance sport among sports, is not comparable in terms of extent to that of the individual sports of swimming, cycling, and running. Mm -hmm. you, you cannot just directly adopt and combine the training practices of the three disciplines that is made up of. Uh, the stringing together of the three sports, the different distances with the different demands on the training and the musculoskeletal system, as well as the combined injury patterns make the triathlon and the injuries that occur to the athletes unique and are the reason that this sport has an exceptional position in endurance sports in a physiological, biomechanical and training technical point of view. You have always got to remember that triathlon is not just the sum of its free sports. It's more than that, as you mentioned before. In my point of view, or in my opinion, cross-training or crossover effects can be key causes of discomfort and injuries, except those, for example, caused by an accident or horrible training mistakes, like abrupt increase of volume or intensity. However, this cannot be generalized for all triathletes, for all performance levels in a narrow sense. Crossover effects are mostly dependent on the training volume and intensity. Those two factors must be seen in relation with or in context to the individual threshold of sustaining workload and depends, for example, on fitness level, anatomical abnormalities, and so on. So in my opinion, summarily, more or less crossover effects may only come into play after certain individual specific training volume 
or accumulation of training intensity has been reached. The variety through the three disciplines in triathlon likely reduces the risk of injury with a correspondingly moderate training volume as the entire body is trained balanced and non-one-sided. By increasing the training volume, training intensity, and the density of the respective sessions per week, if generation times are too short, the work of individual disciplines can have a negative effect on the other disciplines. So it can always be the other way around. That's really interesting, David, and, and, and thank you for that, that answer. So I, I like that idea that it's the individual threshold that's, as you mentioned, and if regeneration times are, are too short, then maybe that's when that's when the negative effects might might start happening. So so what are we talking about? What are, what are the actual risks of training for a triathlon? Yeah, well, uh, triathletes commonly attribute injury in a particular anatomical side to training in more than one discipline, supporting the theory that in addition to the usual mechanics or the mechanism of stress seen in single sport athletes, engaging multi-sports puts athletes at the risk for cumulative stress injuries. I will give you some examples how, of how these crossover effects could occur. For example, when the calf, especially the Achilles tendon, are stressed by excessive plantar flexion during swimming and by repeated force production during cycling, it may take less stress during running to cause an overuse injury like aculodynia. So the same, similar in case of excessive strength training of the lower body, like jump variations, in addition to a high triathlon specific training volume and intensity. Or for example, in, in case of shoulder pain to, to, to a high volume of swimming, especially when this involves the use of battles and resistant aids linked with many, many hours in the aerobar position during cycling. Concerning running, the tired muscles caused by previous load can lead to a reduced remodeling ability of the body, respectively the bones, and consequently to an increased risk of injuries. For example, in the case of shin splints, so in context to peltering sessions or race situation, has to be considered that in the T2 transition phase, which lasts after cycling until the correct and optimal running technique is achieved, the forces acting to the musculoskeletal system cannot be absorbed by the lower extremities and promote the transfer of stress to the lumbar and sacral region and the knee. The transition from a concentric to an increased eccentric muscle activity from a low joint stress position to an upright position with a combined higher impact onto the musculoskeletal system during running causes cumulative stress. So strengthen core and hip muscles reduce the tendency of the upper body to lean forward as fatigue process, especially during the transition from cycling to running and like sufficient flexibility in the knee joint enables better absorption of the ground reaction forces. With 
increasing exhaustion due to the previous load, triathletes show increased adduction with accompanying internal rotation in the hip while running. This and weaknesses in the trunk muscles, in particular a muscle imbalance of flexion and extension in the hip, have a negative effect on the lumbar spine area. Beside the already mentioned increased muscle fatigue, the duration of the competition, the increased stiffness in the knee joint with the resulting reduced shockwave absorption and reduced adaptability to the ground reaction forces, the metabolic shift, the increase in lactate and dehydration should be mentioned in context with the crossover effects, definitely. Another risk of training in general is the fact that triathletes who are injured and prohibited from executing their running workout may compensate that with spending more time in swimming, cycling and cross training with the result that the injured body region can't be healed appropriately or that the situation is getting even worse. This worsening of an existing injury situation also can be happen or can also happen because of avoiding medical attention or assistance. And furthermore, previous injuries correlate significantly with the occurrence of new injuries. Mm-hmm. This, this premise of not stopping, but instead increasing or modifying injury in another discipline, from that in which the original injury occurred had only been reported anecdotally in the literature, but we have some, albeit preliminary data in world championship Olympic distance age groupers that supports it. To me, this is fascinating to see how this is all interconnected based on, on all the factors that, that David was mentioning. And David, you, you mentioned a few, a few things that seem to be uh, risk factors, risk factors for injury. So, say for yeah. example, you were talking about uh, the strength of your core and hip muscles. Uh, you talked uh, briefly. You mentioned flexibility. You mentioned that cumulative stress that from that crossover effect from from the three disciplines. Um, and as you guys just just finished mentioning, uh, the worsening of an existing injury by basically just stopping to training that mode of exercise, but then shifting your training to to a different mode. So. When we talk about risk factors for injury, what can we control? Because that is there's a session in, in, in the book chapter that is actually dedicated to this risk factors for injury. So I was just wondering if you if you both could talk a little bit more about that. What can we control when we talk about this risk factors for injury? Identification and understanding of injury etiology, including the mechanisms of injury, uh, the activity at the time of injury and the risk factors for that injury is important to allow for appropriate targeting of prevention programs. Mm-hmm. In my point of view, as Veronica mentioned before, before we can talk about the risk factors for injury, we have to determine what are the most affected body regions each discipline. Mm-hmm. So in this context, we have, we have or we concentrate on Atraumatic injuries or overuse injuries, which are attributed to training habits as opposed to traumatic injuries like collision or falls in cycling, for example. Mm-hmm. 
So in, the, in concerning swimming, the shoulder is definitely the most affected part, especially tendons. The knee, the lumbar, and the cervix area are the most frequent ones regarding cycling. And respectively for running, athletes suffer most from discomfort belonging to the knee, like runner's knee, and iliopubular band friction syndrome, the Achilles tendon, the lower leg, like shin splints or plantar fasciitis, and to the lumbar area. Mm -hmm. Further on, in general, risk factors for injuries are classified in two groups. First, extrinsic factors are those that are modifiable and mostly based on training failures or ignorance. All those concerning the training control, like training volume and intensity, are they both footwear, bike fitting, and the individual technique of the respective discipline. The intrinsic factors mean the internal person-dependent factors, which reflect the individual biological and psychosocial characteristics of a person. In comparison to the modifiable extrinsic factor, a coach has to cope with these intrinsic ones and only can react on them. Above all, attention should be paid to muscle imbalances, previous injuries and anatomical specifics or abnormalities and those should be corrected, for example, with shoe insole, balance, stabilization and leg axis training mm -hmm. and so on. The essential risk factors for running have already been discussed in context to the transition from cycling to running. Summarily, uh, due to the higher impact, uh, mostly caused by ground traction forces, intrinsic factors favor the occurrence of injuries while running more than in comparison to cycling and swimming. Mm -hmm. The risk would then be exacerbated by maladjusted training control, not suited running shoes, inappropriate running surface, and running style or technique. Concerning cycling, an additional complication is that the collective of triathletes is not homogeneous, but rather professional athletes and amateurs meet here. Many triathletes have technical deficiencies, which also lead to an increased risk of force. A, delay, a delayed reaction time, which is taking into account in danger zones, results from triathlon bike due to the use of an aerobar. Particular sources of danger for force uh, are getting on and off in the transition area, as well as narrowing before curves and curves themselves. So furthermore, a greater willingness to take risks in competitions leads to an increased risk of injury from force and collusions while cycling. The triathletes reported, especially the male ones, reported more pain in the lumbar spine area than professional cyclists. This can be due to the aero position called aerobar, which brings the athletes into a more static stretch position. 
So this was the part of the, the cycling, but concerning swimming, here are no abrupt movements and high movements, speeds of extremities compared to tennis or volleyball, for example. Most injuries there are overused ones, mostly affecting tendons. Regarding the shoulder pain in swimming, it should be noted that triathlon-specific studies refer to the discipline-specific ones. Unfortunately, mostly there is not shown whether parameters such as age, performance class, years of training, training volume, main stroke, percentage of the strokes in training, strength training, percentage of gymnastics or balanced exercises were taken into account as current training components. So the frequency of shoulder pain is positively correlated with the increase in the performance class, the amount of training volume, and mostly also with the increase in the training age, excessive stretching, inadequate or imbalanced strength training, and wrong crawl technique. Often the simultaneous adduction and internal rotation movement during the entire underwater phase in freestyle, especially between the pulling and pushing phase, is viewed as a particular burden on the shoulder due to the ringing out position. Mm -hmm. uh, in case of the former physiotherapist of the famous Australian swimmer Ian Ford, Mr. Collego, however, is often of the opinion that those swimmers who tend to suffer from shoulder complaints are those who have insufficient flexibility, flexibility in terms of internal shoulder rotation. So in that case, they try to imitate a raised elbow in the underwater phase. As a result, when the elbow is raised in the pulling phase without prior internal rotation of the shoulder, there is a higher stress load on the compensating body areas. Uh, except in our and one other study, no triathlon study examined the influence of swim battles or resistance increasing aids, for example, resistant bands, dragging resistance bodies, and so on during swimming training. Our experience has shown that triathletes like to swim with a pool boy to rest their legs and at the same time put more strain on their arms. Mm -hmm. The intensification of the shoulder and arm muscles is also achieved through the additional use of swimming paddles. But contrary to the resistance swimming, we found no context between swimming paddles and shoulder band. However, this is interesting in the discipline specific literature, it's shown that swimmers with a higher proportion of battles in training are more often affected by shoulder band despite less training kilometers. Mm -hmm. The connection, therefore, between shoulder pain and hand battles is confirmed with the predominant occurrence of shoulder pain among swimmers in the early and mid-season. Because in this training phase, the proportion of training with swimming battles is highest. That's fantastic. I'm going to sound as 
like a broken record here, but I'm I'm amazed with the level of detail uh, and information that both of you have in, in, in this topic. And David, you, you can correct me if, if I'm off base here, but basic, basically one from what, what I can hear you saying, it seems that this resonates with, with a topic that previous participants and previous speakers in your seminar have, have brought up as well, is that the, the coach's job in triathlon is safe because as you were mentioning how it is important for athletes to have proper skill and proper technique in each one of the modes of exercise as potentially yes. a, a way to, to minimize injuries and, and also the, all those Absolutely. factors that you mentioned in terms of managing training load and making sure that those that there's no uh, no significant failures or no, no significant errors in terms of everything that they were asking the, the athletes to do. So it just, again, it just brought, brings up the importance of having a, a, a good coach to guide the athlete throughout this, this entire process. But this is where we're going with the conversation. I, I do have to ask both of you the, the million dollar question is, since we know all these intrinsic intrinsic factors that are related to injuries, then can we prevent injuries in triathlon? Is is that something that is that is possible? Can do coaches have the power of preventing injuries in, in their athletes? Okay, well, here we're talking about stage three of the TRIP framework, translation of research into injury prevention practice. Uh, once the extent of the injury problem has been identified. Uh, you set priorities for prevention and the factors that contribute to that injury being identified. We need to, we need to, identify what, what are the solutions to these problems? Uh, what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Um, I finished my chapter in the IOC book by saying that um, the first step towards improvement of the level of information that's available to guide triathletes and their coaches towards a less injury prone future is first to form with governing body support, a triathlon specific consensus statement for definition and recording of race related injuries. Multiple authors in this field have also said exactly the same thing. And and we would ideally get the registry system from such work uh, being implemented in large scale prospective longitudinal surveys of sanctioned events and and this is actually something that David and I have been preparing for a really long time mm-hmm. um, if you then got central collation of the data so obtained uh, we could analyze how to lessen injury risk through for example and here I'm talking about racing improvements in course design Mm-hmm. but also for the potential value of this kind of surveillance system to be increased, it's got to have enough information to be also used within triathlon training related research uh, into injury and illness. And if we're going to get there, actually what we need is uh, first, well, we need marked improvement in the detail and the accuracy of quantification of overall. So that's weighted for training mode and discipline specific training stress. We need to develop valid methods of determining the extent of subsequent training modification, both in and in other disciplines from the one in which the injury originated. And on top of that, we need valid methods for monitoring injury recurrence The bottom line is we cannot prevent injuries in triathlon, 
we can mitigate the risk of them occurring, their severity, we can optimize rehabilitation from them and lessen the chance that they're going to reoccur. I'd state a point here that was made by Dr. George Dallum, Hunter Kemper's coach, in his 2005 review of medical considerations in triathlon, and it still holds. We're in 2020, it still holds. There are very few studies examining the safety or the injury risk of youth participation in triathlon. So one thing that we need that has implications both for the long-term future of the sport and the athletes who participate in it is determination of the effects of triathlon training on musculoskeletal health, both at a young age and in the long term. And again, we need international prospective longitudinal cohort studies to do that. I love your answer that we can mitigate uh, the risk of injuries occurring, but unfortunately, we're, we cannot prevent them from, from happening as well. And there, there are quite a few challenges in there. And I think the first one that, that you mentioned in terms of making sure that we have a market improvement in our detailing accuracy of quantification of, of training stress I think that is a huge challenge in itself. And I think it's something that Dr. Steven Seiler mentioned in, in our first seminar presentation. So just that I'm respectful of, of both of your, of your time today, we're, we're getting close to, to one hour here. I would like to allow both of you a quick three minute rant about how to keep triathletes healthy and injury free. What would you say to, to our listeners? Well, neither the stress, so I'm talking about life stress as well as training stress to which triathletes subject themselves, nor what this means for their well-being have been comprehensively looked at. We haven't got enough scientific data to aid triathletes, most of whom are older age groupers, balance the multidiscipline training that's required in the sport. But any effects, any negative effects of racing on immunological, oxidative, cardiovascular and humoral parameters appear for most athletes to be transient and non-severe. And for most athletes, injury and illness incurred whilst training also appears to be of minor or moderate severity. But the long term effects on health of triathlon training and racing, they're still relatively unknown. Absolutely. Um, as you already mentioned, triathlon must be seen to be more than the sum of the sports of which is made up. Exactly. In my point of view. The, the, there aren't at the moment any internationally implemented sports-specific guidelines for athletes or coaches about the cumulative potential cumulative risk for injury across training. Uh, so, for example, repetitive cycle run transition training for knee and lower back injury all the potential negative consequences for successful rehabilitation of the athlete continuing to train in one or two or, or three, or actually if you include weight training for triathlon disciplines when they're injured and the potential injury risks of this kind of behavior are maybe, and this is an important point, they're maybe less intuitively obvious to the athlete or the coach than those occasioned by things like abrupt changes in training intensity or volume or hill running or not giving enough attention to the development of technical ability. And I, I, I'd stress really strongly actually, 
that the little prospect of data that exists suggests that injury recurrence is a significant problem in triathletes. And this could be due to premature returns to training or competition, to underestimation of the severity of the primary injury. And it could also be because of inadequate rehabilitation. O'Toole said in 2001, and I quote, it would appear that getting triathletes to allow injuries to heal properly before returning to full training is the largest challenge facing this position. I asked multiple team national team doctors at multiple world championships for their opinions about this, and I actually don't remember a single one disagreeing with that particular statement. So we'd stress to the injured athlete and his or her coach that it's in their best interest, it really is in their best interest in terms of learning what caused an injury, recovering from it as quickly as possible and minimizing the chance that it might recur to see a clinician as soon as possible for specialist diagnosis and support. Once again, this is probably one of those areas that we could we could have an entire podcast just, just discussing why why recurrence of injuries is, is, is something that is, that is so frequent in the sport. But shifting gears a, a little bit, we, while we might be casting somewhat of a negative light here on, on the sport, given how, how we're having this, extension, this extensive conversation about the negative consequences of training for triathlons, Veronica, you've been, you've been working and you have some work on, on, on a topic that is the changing relationship between multidisciplinary endurance sport participation and and health status across the lifespan. So what are, what are the actual benefits of, of training for a triathlon over, over one's lifespan? Triathlon has three of the highest participation sports worldwide. And the general advantages of triathlon training are the same as those for general endurance training. They're really positive in terms of offsetting the effects of non-communicable disease decreased obesity, decreased diabetes, decreased metabolic syndrome, and so on. And at least up to a certain age, a lesser degree of the deterioration in performance that comes with age, most triathletes are master's athletes. And uh, as we've got detailed performance and training data for master's triathletes, uh, we, together with Professor Piacentini and Professor Romo Leppert, are looking at the extent to which training may be offsetting this decrease with age. Thank you for that answer. And uh, like I said, it's it, it's good to see that there there are many, many, many benefits to triathlon training that obviously outweigh any any potential risks of, of training for for a triathlon. So, one of the one of the main topics of, of our conference this year is, is looking past 2021 and beyond. So my, my final question for, for both of you today is, what is the future of the sport in this topic? What do we see happening over the next uh, one or two Olympic cycles when we're talking about injuries and illnesses in triathlon? Well, risk factor analysis is not actually linear. It's not a case of looking at one risk factor at a time. And, and this was beautifully discussed in an absolutely classic paper by Betancourt et al. It's called Complex Systems Approach for Sports Injuries, Moving from Risk Factor Identification to Injury Pattern Recognition. Um, I'm going to give you another quote from Movosa. Uh, Future investigation of the potential injury risks of triathlon, cross-training and racing. 
needs to use an integrated methodology and analysis strategy that takes the cyclic multifactorial nature of changing risk factors into account to create a dynamic recursive picture of etiology. You've got to think of all these risk factors like the interconnected strands of a spider's web. Imagine a spider's web, you touch one string of that and everything else changes. And that web is unique to each spider, like each athlete. So there's a real, there's a lot of really interesting work going on now in terms of using big data and neural networks and so on for injury production. And this needs huge data sets. Uh, I, I've done a bit of that. And as I said before, David and I have been preparing a large scale prospective longitudinal study uh, to be done across multiple races and during training that, that could be used for that for some time. Uh, I, I mentioned Professor Finch's trip framework loads of times. Uh, stages three and four, developing strategies to prevent in illness or injury. But five is determining how to best implement injury or illness prevention strategies. And the last one, number six, is determining the effectiveness of these strategies. International sporting federations have an obligation under the Olympic Charter to encourage and support measures to protect athletes. And to do so, their medical commissions have to draw on the available sports medicine research evidence base. And the fact that the Springer Triathlon Medicine book, several of the chapter authors of which are world-renowned experts, Professor Mike Tipton for cold water immersion, Professor Sanjay Sharma for cardiovascular adaptations in triathlon, Professor Mountjoy for the female athlete, Louise Burke for nutritional strategies, who, who I believe is one of next month's speakers. Wow, mm -hmm. <laughs> World Triathlon Edmonton and University of Alberta. Congratulations, <laughs> to name just a few was fronted by and partly written by Miglarini, the ITU medical chair features discussion of actual race risk management plans, the one, the marine plan for the games, and has clearly stated support at the political level with Marisol Casado having written the forward is super, super encouraging. That last point, I think it's, it's pretty interesting because it's, it's one of the things that you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation here today that to actually tackle this, this issue in triathlon requires, requires a team sport and requires the, the effort from, from multiple people and multiple stakeholders. So I already gave both of you the opportunity to have a, a quick rant, but what do you think that coaches should expect to see or do over the next Olympic cycle, over the next two Olympic cycles that is related to those factors that are associated with injuries and, and illnesses in the sport? Well, I, I'd like to make three points. Uh, the first one is the level of research that's being done on triathlon is, as David pointed out, nothing like that which has been done or is available for its component disciplines. But it has massively increased since triathlon became an Olympic sport and it continues to do so. And uh, I'm going to give you a plug here, if you forgive me. Mm -hmm. this, 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 this year, for example, uh, JSAM's Journal of Science and Medicine and Sport was the first top journal to appoint as first triathlon-specific editor. That, that's me, by the way. So if you're thinking about submitting a paper, please send it there. Um, uh, myself, uh, Professor Piacentini and Dr. Hurden, we, we also recently edited a special issue of the journal Sports on maximizing triathlon health and performance. 
that is completely free to access. And I was in contact with over 200 triathlon research groups for that. I spoke earlier of the importance of increasing collaboration between experts in the field and increasing the dissemination of that knowledge. Uh, so my second point is, don't worry, I know exactly what you were getting at when you referred in your question to the next two Olympic cycles, the mixed relay. The fundamental change in Olympic triathlon races with the advent of the mixed relay from a single to a multi-sport start event is highly demanding in terms of recovery from and prevention of exercise-induced muscle injuries. And I'm absolutely delighted to be able to say that an interdisciplinary team consisting of biomechanists, sports scientists, and sports physicians from the German Olympic Federation and the German Triathlon Union, as well as scientists specializing in the field of exercise-induced muscle injuries, already anticipated your question by about two years <laughs> and prepared a detailed response to it. Hopfiel et al. Accelerating Recovery from Exercise-Induced Muscle Injuries in Triathletes, Considerations for Olympic Distance Races in a Special Issue. And there's multiple other papers that directly relate to triathlon training and injury in the Special Issue. And I highly recommend that you, you know, our listeners check them out. They include, and not only these, Training and Competition Readiness in Triathlon by Dr. Neroa Extebadia, uh, Professor David Pine and Inigo Mujica, which explores emerging trends and strategies from the latest literature and evidence-based knowledge for improving training readiness and performance during competition in triathlon. And Casper uh, Grimm, Ruth Kramer, Martin Engelhardt, uh, Sven Walter John, Tilo Hotfield, and Matthias Wilhelm Hoppe's paper on the effectiveness of manual therapy, customized foot orthosis, and combined therapy in the management of plantar fasciitis, a randomized controlled trial. That compares the effectiveness of manual therapy, customized foot orthosis, and combined therapy in the management of plantar fasciitis. Plantar fasciitis being the most common cause of plantar heel pain. And let me repeat this because it's worth repeating. This is a randomized controlled trial. This is the gold standard. This is trip stage six, evaluation of effectiveness in a real world context. It's absolutely fantastic. Professor Piacentini and I also co-editors for another special issue that's still running. We're still accepting papers and this time on the prevention of overtraining for general functional morphology and kinesiology. This is also relevant. It's also free. Mm -hmm. So in addition to better triathlon specific medical education, we can expect to see improvements over the next two Olympic cycles in triathlon specific coach education. And the, the level of continuing professional development that's available for triathlon coaches is going up all the time. I mean, this World Triathlon Edmonton University of Alberta Legacy Conference that features so many world-class speakers is a wonderful opportunity for continuing professional development for coaches. I mean, when I saw the lineup that you had, I mean, I'd, I, for example, I'd, I'd never heard Professor Silas speak 
you know, I was so clear. I mean, for me, it was just like amazing. And of course, he's an, I mean, we all know how your speakers are fantastic. You know, many congratulations and many thanks to all of you for what you've done. But okay, enough of enough of the next two Olympic cycles. Right now, we're in a global emergency. And I'm going to quote Sato et al's May 2020 paper really heavily because it's actually really good. Uh, preventative measures to reduce the risk of COVID infection have already massively affected elite sports. Schedules also, of course, tremendously affected with major international events having been postponed, including, of course, your race. And, and on top of that, most elite athletes are being forced to train at home on their own and mostly unsupervised. And it, it's difficult to provide training solutions that are comparable to those that we have under normal circumstances. So during COVID-19 home confinement, uh, athletes are actually very likely just uh, exposed to some level of detraining because of insufficient and or inappropriate training stimuli. And these changes, they're going to result in impaired performance and they're going to result in increased injury risk if upon restart, you, we can't like grant a sport specific reconditioning that's appropriate. And on top of that, athletes on their return to sports journey, they might have an inappropriate rehabilitation or reconditioning. And again, a higher risk of re-injury when championships suddenly continue. Uh, let me put it one way. Injury occurrence seems to be regulated by a complex mechanical interplay between tissue stress, strain and loading. So if you have alterations in mechanical structures like muscles and tendons, that which are likely involved in, in the, the, the injury process. And David, David talked about how that could be an issue in the bike run transition, for example. So after this period of detraining, athletes may actually be more susceptible to injury because of alteration in tissue specific mechanical properties after COVID home confinement or you know, changes in their training. So, so in this scenario right now, we've got to try and guarantee in the most objective way possible the physical status of the athletes and bridge this potential gap between their perceived and their urge to compete versus their real sports readiness it's difficult to predict when the elite sports are going to restart. We've got two possible scenarios. In the first one, a lot of events will probably get condensed in a short time and athletes might be unprepared to, to cope with the elevated training and competition demands. So for that reason, you'd need a sports-specific reconditioning period to, to, to help them recover their in-season neuromuscular and cardiorespiratory qualities. Uh, thus potentially reducing the risk of injury. Similar, similar. I mean, talking to the coaches, this would be kind of like similar to what, what generally happens during the pre-season after a transition period. In the second scenario, this emergency goes on for even longer. So this situation of insufficient and or inadequate training is protected, protracted even longer. And the associated physiological declines are even more accentuated so, so in that case, you have to be even more careful 
to allow full resurgence of the athlete's physiological and mental function and performance. So as coaches, we've got to be really careful with what we're doing. Um, Sato et al. actually stated, and again, I'm quoting directly, we recommend extreme caution in programming, training and racing schedules after the emergency because of the impacts on injury risk and really athletes. And, and as we all know, and it's also why we're all talking to you online rather than being in Canada, um, I always wanted to go to Canada. <laughs> uh, but to, to, to that, I'd add that the importance of carefully programming training and the importance of monitoring the athlete for signs and symptoms of maladaptation for the purposes of injury prevention has been magnified by this crisis. And moreover, for many athletes, being an athlete and their level of competitive performance is, is closely linked to identity and self-esteem. Uh, we just talked about how risk management strategies for COVID like lockdowns or curfews can, can impact injury risk, uh, but of course they can also impact mental health. An injury can negatively affect an athlete's mental health and well-being. So, so I would actually like also to draw our listeners' attention to two exceptionally important and significant tools that were very recently released by the IOC to identify athletes who are at risk of mental health disorders. The Sport Mental Health Assessment Tool 1, or SMAHAT 1, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but anyway, that has been developed by Riordan et al. for sport and exercise medicine physicians and other health professionals to assess elite athletes who are potentially at risk for or already experiencing mental health symptoms and disorders. And because the athletes entourage, so I'm talking about their friends, mm -hmm. their fellow athletes, their family, their coaches, their significant others have also been identified as very, very important supports for an athlete's mental health, a second tool the International Olympic Committee Sport Mental Health Recognition 1, or SMAT 1, was also developed for use by non-medical people. It attempts to identify significant and or persistent thoughts or feelings or behaviors uh, and or physical changes among athletes. And, and when they're identified, the tool should facilitate referral for appropriate support and treatment. You can find really good talks about the SMART 1 and 2, as well as COVID, on the website of the Amsterdam Collaboration on Health and Safety in Sport. And I, I should also like to thank uh, Professor Evert Verhagen of the Amsterdam Collaboration, which is an IOC research center for organizing those talks and for making them available please watch them, please share them, please raise awareness of them. I cannot emphasize the importance of this enough. Coaches need to increase their awareness of mental health issues, whether they're related to injury or not. Use those tools to, to help enable the identification of elite athletes who are at risk for experiencing mental health symptoms and disorders 
and, and ensure that these athletes receive the support and the treatment that they need. Um, but if I'm going to close, I, I'd say, you know, if we're talking about injury and illness, prevention is always better than cure. Uh, Sands et al. In, in their 2017 paper, they said, although analytics hold considerable promise, you can't post it without rich, thorough, relevant and accessible data on the events that transpired? Um, absolutely right. And in order to improve the informative value of the studies or the comparability of individual triathlon injury studies with one another, a prospective study design, a uniform study duration, uniform definitions of injuries, uniform nomenclatures and variance values, a sufficient scope of investigation and more precise differentiations of the test subjects with regard to gender, distance, training volume or hours and performance are recommended in the future. Yeah, the, the consensus statement on the definition and recording of training and racing load, injury and illness in triathlon that could allow for relatively seamless integration of data from multiple research groups so that like the sport itself, they become more than the sum of its parts doesn't exist yet. And we need that. And we need considerably larger sample sizes than have been obtained by the majority of the studies so far. But there's been actually a lot of progress. Technical guidelines are being updated in the light of advances in research knowledge. For example, uh, the joint FINA and ITU work on the upper temperature limits for open water swimming. And a better understanding of the problems that could face different athlete groups and their associated risk factors has been arrived at. How the relative influence of these risk factors changes at different stages of the training year and how it might also vary between males and females and between athletes within different ability level and event distance specialization groups, as well as between age groups, whether this is between training or doing racing, and then the extent to which such differences might translate into differences in their injury profiles, we need to look at this more carefully on a prospective longitudinal basis. And that could inform future research that uses both a group and an individualized to the athlete multifactorial approach to health and safety risk management. When these kinds of future studies are in the first instance based around self-reported injury or illness in an effort to maximize sample size, there's one thing I would say that's really important. Clinical follow-up within the data collection period needs to be implemented as, as much as possible. And, and this is because most athletes lack medical knowledge. So this clinical support is crucial to obtaining the specific diagnoses for injuries and profound onset mechanisms that further down the line could be used to develop injury prevention programs for the most common triathlon injuries. Um, I wrote in 2010 in that IOC book, we strongly urge that a collaborative research team, of race organizers, technical officials, coaches, athletes, 
medical support staff and researchers working at both the grassroots and the top end of the sport be established for an adequate database of injury and illness related data to be compiled and used to drive continuous improvement in triathlon training and competition practice, as well as athlete, coach, and both technical and medical staff education. So I would like to thank the enormous amount of people who are already doing that and the enormous amount of athletes who've, who, who, who've helped us so much to advance knowledge on this incredibly important topic. Having stakeholders involved from the outside is crucial. This will enable better designed research studies to make an impact because of their incorporation of contextual influences and it will increase their potential for wide scale adoption and scale up. So overall, yeah, the future looks promising. I want to thank you both so much, not just for, for having this conversation here. This has been packed with, with great information. And, and I think that that final point that, that you were making on being more careful when returning to training following, following any COVID isolation or, or any measures that, has, that have been taken due to COVID, that's going to be really important, not just for, for the elite athletes, but for those age groupers as well that they are listening to try to curb their instincts to, to go too hard or compete too soon once any restrictions are, are lifted. But again, the, what I really want to thank you both for is, is for the amazing work that you do. Uh, like I said, all, all the technical information that you have, the details that you have collected, the data that you guys have gathered, you are both doing a fantastic, fantastic work for for the sport of triathlon and it seems like there's a lot left to be done in, in your guys's future so i think you're gonna be you're gonna be quite busy for for quite some time so uh, dr black dr Hoden, thank thank you so much for for your time today and really looking forward to to the presentation later the, the last thing that i'm that i'm gonna say is that all the resources that that either of you have mentioned there's already the links to your both of your websites but if you, if you would like to have a final opportunity to tell the listeners where they can, they can connect with you, whether it's social media, your own websites, then I'll pass it on to, to both of you and you can, you, you can do that. Thank you very much. And, and yep. thank you again for having us to talk. You know, we really appreciate the, the opportunity to give uh, feedback you know, and, and also to tell you about the, the amazing work that our colleagues have done. You know. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And um, the trainers and athletes who are interested in will get some more information on triathlonresearch.com or as well on Instagram. And we, are, we like to answer some questions, of course. And we're looking forward, well, bigger steps and great work together. And hope we will hear and see us again. Hope see us again one time, yeah? <laughs> Thank you both so much. And you guys have a fantastic night.